Welcome to Ascending Olympus, the Edge of the Crowds Olympics and Paralympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and today, one week to go at a day, <laughs> I'm joined by Michelle and Jason. So how are the two of you today? I'm doing really well today. Yeah, as you said, it's a one week to go. So really excited and I'm really getting into it. And obviously the team was announced over the weekend. So it's just becoming that little bit more, um, you know, it's becoming a bit more real now we definitely had a hectic weekend having to report on all the announcements while it was so hot in australia we were just reporting on snow and ski events and i was like "Mm, the snow does sound really nice right now (laughs) meanwhile i I was like to lie in snow (laughs) basically (laughs) no i oh my god last weekend was so busy and we did release an extra like announcements episode so we're not going to go through too many of the actual Australian Olympians this time around but it is very exciting and the fact that it's just about a week to go thought we'd start the episode with what we're most looking forward to at this year's Winter Olympics so who would like to go first? I'll go um I haven't looked into too much news about it I think intentionally so so I'm really like more hyped than usual about the opening ceremony I feel like it's been a while since I've had I've seen like a big production of like an event because so many uh, of your big ceremonies have been postponed and really you can tell that Beijing has been putting a lot of dollars um, and a lot of personnel behind this opening ceremony. So I'm keen to see what they pull out for me. Yeah, the opening ceremony should be really good, but I'm mostly looking forward to something that will be happening the day before the opening ceremony, and that is when the competition of the Games actually gets underway with the curling. Uh, Australia are participating in curling for the first time, being represented by Dean Hewitt and Tali Gill, and I think just because this is the first time Australia is being represented in curling, it's that little bit more special, and the fact that it's opening up the Games, that competition, um, all eyes will be on it. From the very first moment yeah I think it's just curling in the hockey to start off with on those like day minus two and day minus one um I'm also really keen to see the hockey as well as the opening ceremony because you know it's always fun to who lights the cauldron and unlike 2018 it's not as obvious as just being you know Kim <laughs> um but I the thing that I'm probably most looking forward to, surprise, surprise, is the figure skating, but specifically the team event, which I know some people don't care about, but I have been doing cracked, like, here's the math of how Team Japan could possibly win gold. It's probably not going to happen. The Russians have pretty much got that sewn up, but at least beat Team USA and get the silver in the team event because... They are easily in the top three strongest teams this time around. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting showdown. Um, I think something else that makes it really entertaining to watch is that because there's a narrow field, it does mean that you don't see an over-representation of specific kinds of skaters. You do see a lot more diversity just because you need to find 10 countries that can offer up uh, a skater in all four disciplines that have a, are at high enough of a level to qualify for the Olympics. Well, yeah, and on top of that, the fact that you can choose to just have like one men skater do both the short program and the free skate, or you can like actually play to your strengths and be like, this person can probably do the best for the team in the short program, and this person can do the best for the team in the free skate. It adds something to it, and it I like the tactic, the tactics of it all. Uh, But we might move on to, I know that we said that there was going to be no team announcement news. I actually lied because 
in some heartbreaking news. Uh, Maddie Hoffman, who was expected to make her Olympic debut this year, will not be going to Beijing because she ruptured her ACL. So at the time of recording, the Australian Olympic Committee is working through the late athlete replacement process. Hopefully by Thursday, we will have an answer and check out Edge of the Crowd to see as to whether someone is replacing her or whether they will just go to a three-member alpine skiing team. But to do it at, I think it was the Utah Invitational, um, so close to the Olympic Games, there's a little bit of like flashbacks to Tess Cody, even though Tess Cody's was in Pyeongchang when she injured her, like she ruptured her ACL. Yeah, it's absolutely disappointing to see for Maddie um, so close out from the Games to pick up this injury. And yeah, it's just so disappointing to her, especially when she was looking forward to making her debut. It's such an incredible achievement to make or to be selected for the team and especially to make your debut. So um, I no doubt that she's going to be feeling really sort of disappointed and deflated that she can't go to Beijing um, after all the work that she's done to to get there and prepare. And yeah, as I said, be selected for the team. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what the Australian Olympic Committee does in the coming days and who they might pick to replace her. Um, yeah, you know, someone will be very lucky to um, be selected now and be a part of the team and travel over to Beijing now and, um, you know, very unfortunately sort of reap the rewards of um, this unfortunate injury, but um, it does pave the way for someone else to hopefully perform as well in in Beijing and hopefully you know perform well for Australia too. It already has been like a tumultuous past two seasons with the pandemic disrupting travel and competitions and everything so to have this be the final thing that kind of takes you out of the running really must sting a little bit because obviously in the lead up everyone's been so careful about trying not to get COVID and trying to actually be able to attend um, like uh, events and competitions in order to qualify and uh, really kind of prepare their peak in such an uncertain time so it really must be hard to kind of be knocked down at like the final step. Yeah and because I don't want to be too much of a downer tonight we're going to move on to Whilst the World Cups, for the most part, are done prior to the Olympics, there were three big events. We're going to leave the skating to last like we always do, but we'll start with the X Games in Aspen, where Scotty James won his fourth X Games gold medal in the super half pipe, which they got, like, I think it was on a time limit of, like, 40 minutes, and they had 10 athletes, and it was just essentially how many runs could get done in those 40 minutes. And they managed to get four runs done. I know after the first, Scotty was in second behind Ayumu Hirano, who has to be going into the games now at this point as the Olympic, as the favorite for the gold medal. But then after his second run, which was so good, uh, he jumped up into first and he did the same run like two times over again. And it just got cleaner for his third and fourth runs which was absolutely phenomenal. And then 16-year-old Valentino Giselli was making his X Games debut, uh, was fifth after his first run and then couldn't get another clean run down. So he ended up sixth overall. But for Scotty to win his fourth and then for Valentino to have such a good first like debut at the X Games, it's a pretty impressive weekend for both of them. Yeah, it sure is. Um, Scotty James winning his fourth X Games uh, gold medal and his seventh consecutive medal in at the X Games in total as well. It just shows how strong Scotty James is at this competition and in his uh, sport as well because he gets all of these results and 
Yeah, um, a really good result again this weekend, obviously, and obviously leading into the Olympics, you want to, you know, prove to others and yourself that you can be up there with the best and finish on the podium. And uh, especially for someone like Valentino Gaselli as well, to go to your first X Games and be selected as well for your first Olympic Games, I think to get a sixth result placing at these X Games is really good. Um, obviously, 16-year-old, very young. So he's going to take a lot of confidence from this weekend, uh, especially, and into the upcoming Olympics and just into his career um, in general as well. It's a very fresh, new uh, sort of start to his career and the fact that he's already, you know, placing in sort of the top six of, um, you know, a very competitive field. I just know that he's going to be reaping the rewards, the sort of same rewards as Scotty James is now uh, in a few years' time. And I think it's especially impressive given that there must be so much pressure on Scotty given that last week he didn't do too well in Switzerland to be able to bounce back now and really kind of beat the uh, gold medal favourite, as you said, in this kind of a showdown. It makes it interesting, obviously, for the athletes being like, oh, it really could be kind of uh still up in the air for everyone but also for the viewers like it's it tends to be kind of boring almost when you have a favorite that just consecutively wins and wins and wins and wins all the way up to the olympics where it feels like what you really want is an upset but to have it kind of be very up in the air up until the last moment must be really exciting yeah so i watched scotty james's behind the scenes video of the x games because he posts behind the scenes of a lot of the competitions he goes to on his youtube channel and like his opening was basically to all right so plan is to not forget your phone. go stick to the plan win off right everyone clear 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 <laughs> Plus, like, him driving with very, very icy windows on his car and looking really uncertain. Which, you always know that, like, snowboarders are a bit, like, are characters, but Scotty James is a character. <laughs> and I think that it, like, warms you up to him even more because, like, when you are one of the best in the world or even by some definitions the best in the world, um, it's really easy to not like you because people want to root for an underdog. And I think a lot of people will root for Valentino for that reason, because he's beaten Sean White this year. He's beaten Scotty James this year. Like, yes, that's partially because Scotty didn't have that best, his best run in Lax. But at the same time, Valentino can go with the best on his best day. And that'll be interesting to see because if he can hit every single trick on a run, I reckon there's some bigger scores than he's been pulling out this year. Yeah, let's definitely hope so. Yeah, and then we also had Tess Cody uh, in the snowboard slope style at the X Games. It was also her debut, and she ended up in sticks, so she didn't really get the cleanest of runs down. Um, but it's also another good thing to see, and also with the form she's in heading into the Olympics, I think that one last competition under her belt will help her. Yeah, like even if maybe sixth isn't the place that she wanted to be um, after this competition, um, it's still good to kind of see that she is in good condition going into Beijing and that everything seems to be kind of ready and um, ready for uh, that big Olympic stage. Uh, plus X Games scoring is kind of weird because it's not like proper score sheets. It's just like impression. And you're like, it's a bit, a bit sus, a bit weird. <laughs> Don't really like that. 
um so there ends up being some sort of score sheets but like the rankings is just like it's based on impression and I was just like I don't like it I'd rather see scores um but there was a world cup event in the ski cross this weekend and we had Sammy Kennedy sim in action it was a double header um so in the qualifying she came sixth and eighth in her two qualifying events so seeded really well that's the best she's done in seeding all season and she had a season's best in the first competition where she ended up fifth overall um i believe that's either winning the b final or coming last in the a final so that's like a Either way, like you either made the B final, you either made the A final and just didn't have the best final race or you were the best of the people in the semis that didn't end up making that A final. Um, And sometimes that's also a little bit like luck of the draw as to who you end up matching up with in your semis. But then in the second comp, which was I think later that day or maybe it was the next morning, uh, she ended up finishing 13th. So that was the one that she'd qualified in sixth in. And then was 13. So obviously didn't have the best quarterfinal and then would have missed out on the semis and ranked 13th by virtue of where she finished in the quarters. Uh, but it does bump her up the World Cup ranking. She started last weekend 23rd in the world and now she's 21st. So on her best day, she's going to get close to a podium by the sounds of it because at the Olympics, that final, I be- that A final, I believe, is five athletes. Yeah, she's going to get close. And if... Um, you know, despite, you know, possible uh, results that might not have gone her way or might not have been uh, the position that she wanted to finish in, um, to go up in the rankings is really good. And uh, yeah, that'll just sort of improve her standing in the sport um, and among her competitors. And um, yeah, I think she'll take a bit of, she'll take something from this, um, you know, that despite not performing her best, or at the um, level that she wants to, that she was still able to go up the rankings and um, still sort of execute what she wanted to do. And uh, yeah, that'll really hold her in good stead going forward and especially into the Olympics. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, yeah, completing all these uh, runs uh, is really good for her. Yeah, once again, it's all about the momentum that's being built in the lead up, peaking at the right time and kind of trying to make sure that your all your attention and your efforts are going to the right places uh, in preparation for the big event, which is the Olympics. I mean, with the Olympics now a week away, it is interesting that we're only just seeing um, some of the playbook rules and changes to the playbook coming out. And a big one is they've adjusted the criteria um, surrounding COVID test positive results. So it was originally that with your PCR test, you needed to reach a Clyde threshold of above 40. And if you were below 40, you'd be COVID positive. And now they've shifted it to, if you're below 35, you'll test as COVID positive. Um, I don't fully understand that. I'm not going to lie. I'm just like, let's say the positive or negative, but um, it is an interesting sort of scenario where they've gone like, Obviously, it's more one of those like really, really mild COVID is now essentially getting ruled as not a positive test. But at the same time, like the whole thing we've learned this entire pandemic is if even if you're asymptomatic and have really mild COVID, you can still transmit it to other people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, we're learning so much still about this virus. But um, after everything that we've sort of learned over the last two years, you know, this decision 
um, you know, from the IOC and the organising committee, um, you know, it is a bit perplexing, I guess, to see that they're sort of changing the rules in terms of what constitutes a positive um, PCR test or how reliable it is or how possible it is to sort of transmit it between different people. Yeah, the big fear, I think, like in the recent few months is the fear of mutations, basically. Like we've established kind of with the original coronavirus um, kind of as much as we can. And then we got all these new mutations come in that really just messed everything up for us and for us in Melbourne led to more lockdowns and uh, continued testing and bring masks back and that kind of thing as these mutations turned out to be more contagious or and even if they were less um, even if the symptoms were more mild and that I think is the fear especially when you're gathering so many international uh, athletes in a single place these are all elite athletes their bodies are like you know they have to be maintained at such a careful balance. So throwing it off in such a way is kind of, they will feel it a lot more than perhaps we will with a mild case as just kind of like regular people. So that's something that obviously it's important to be cautious about. And the Beijing Olympics is trying to strike a balance where they do want to be known as like, you know, the top event every four years. And if you have all these asterisks of like, everyone couldn't compete and, you know, all these top people weren't there. So therefore it doesn't count and people don't really pay attention to it. And that's probably not what you want for the athletes either. Yeah, I think that the asterisk thing kind of needs to get dumped at this point because like, just because, I don't know, what's a good example I don't know just because Michael Phelps wasn't swimming this year like doesn't mean that your gold medal is any less valuable you could have beaten them it's all about who is the best on that day um and if you don't show up you don't get to say oh well it doesn't count or like your fans especially don't get to say oh well it doesn't count because my like my boy wasn't there and you're like shut up <laughs> like I'm, that is the biggest thing is I'm just like if a bunch of athletes get COVID um that's really unfortunate especially given that how many of them are expected to be vaccinated I believe 100% of the Australian team is but small number but then the US team is about 222 athletes strong I believe and they're expected to be 100% vaccinated as well and I think countries like Canada will have similar numbers so it's one of those things at the same time where I'm like, the cases aren't extremely likely, but then at the same time, we have seen positive cases because the IOC has confirmed that 72 uh, people have tested positive in Beijing, uh, in the like Beijing 2022 pregame period, which that a lot means officials. So far it is zero athletes. Um, but at the same time, that is dicey and that's more than we saw in Tokyo as well yeah that's a huge number you know 72 and that's you know even sort of before the games itself has started and so you know you don't want that in those initial stages of preparation because you know you see these at the very start or before the games and you just sort of wonder what might eventuate during the games too um I think that yeah the fact that you're already seeing cases pop up involving the games and people in, involved in the games, um, you know, you'd be a lot more cautious, I think, 
if you were to go to Beijing and if you're an athlete or a coach and we're actually participating in the games itself, uh, especially understanding that, like you said, that's more already more than what we saw from Tokyo last year. And, you know, I think you sort of think that we're in a better place now um, in terms of like where the pandemic's at. But I think the fact that you see cases popping up already and in those large numbers, I think that, yeah, I think that you're always going to be cautious or even more cautious going into Beijing this time around. Um, we know that like, you know, a lot of teams have their own sort of rules and their own sort of regulations in terms of their movements around the villages and um, in terms of their competition. But yeah, it's certainly sort of a scary thought to see how many people have already contracted it and they're just going to get so many more people coming into the country and coming into the village and competing. And yeah, you just wonder where else it'll go. At least hopefully um, people do maintain and stay understanding about all the protocols and any kind of inconveniences that they might cause. Like this report at least kind of proves to people that, you know, everything's not fine yet and we do still need to be doing daily tests and we do still need to be isolating like this and we do still need to wear masks and sanitize the way that we have because it's been so long that you know some people do get lax if they think that like you know it must be fine by now but clearly it still isn't yeah and i think that with the whole closed loop mentality they're going for is similar to the tokyo mentality of it's that they want no athletes or no officials transmitting into the community and they don't want the community transmitting into the olympic bubble um and we've seen that through strange albeit actually sensible directives like the um don't help one of the buses if they crashed yeah. like rule which yes, we debated that a few weeks ago as to whether it made any sense or not. But at the same time, like if that's the main goal, that is very much achievable, especially if the crowd numbers are as limited as they're expected to be. But also I think that like the one thing that we need to constantly remember, because people just go, oh, you're only going to get like touched up by COVID if you have comorbidities. That's not true. Like we've seen athletes' careers end from getting COVID in the past two years. Like it is a career ender in certain sports because of what it does to your lungs, how much fitness you lose, um, how much time off you end up with. Because if you get long COVID, it's a serious issue. And so I think that there does actually need to be a little bit more um, empathy maybe is the best way to put it towards like athletes like risking getting COVID and that sort of thing because if they do get seriously sick some of them will never return to their sports yeah that's right it's a huge risk that any athlete is taking in going over to Beijing and participating in the Olympics that's always the risk that you take I guess um before or going to a different country where so many other um participants from other countries are coming together as well you know you're not sort of just confined to you know sort of Australia or like you know if it was a national competition here and you were just confined to interacting with sort of um people who would largely you know live in Australia um the fact that yeah people are coming from other countries there's that greater risk too because you don't quite know what it's like what the COVID situation is like in other countries so I think, yeah, you're right that we do sort of need to have a bit of empathy in terms of the possibility that, or, 
you know, for the athletes going over, but also the possibility of what it might mean for them if they do get COVID. We obviously don't want any athlete to feel like, you know, if they got COVID that their career would end. Um, we definitely don't want to see that at all. But And the fact that it's happened before, you know, is showing of that. Um, but, yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen and hopefully all the procedures that they put in place for Beijing limit that possibility. Yeah, and I thought another thing that was interesting that this came out, I believe, today is that the Beijing smog uh, has returned and so people's like weather tracking apps that, that track the air pollution uh, went to the very unhealthy level, which is when it's purple, which anyone in Melbourne or Australia can remember from early 2020 is when it's really bad, and really like a, a choking smog some days. And yeah, so it's expected to improve a little bit over the course of this week, but then Lunar New Year's Eve is coming up on January 31st. And I don't know how they are going to handle the fireworks because I know that they were looking for a green slash blue because the sky's blue um, Olympics and having the air and the sky be as clear as possible. But if people are going to let off a whole bunch of fireworks on Lunar New Year Eve, um, it's not going to help the conditions at all. No, I mean, it's already sort of hazarded conditions and hazardous smog in the sky. So you know, if you are adding to that, then that's, you know, not great. Um, you know, it wouldn't improve, you know, the air quality that, you know, they're trying to achieve and they're trying to fix. So, yeah, it's a bit confusing whether they do, you know, this conversation of them choosing to let off fireworks to celebrate. But I guess, yeah, they're just going to have to put something in place, put a rule in place that, you know, limits it or, you know, not, or um, sort of just cans it all together, I guess, just because they want to focus on the Olympics and focus on that air quality and fixing it for the Olympics. So if something needs to happen during the Lunar New Year where, where they do, where they might have to say, you know, no letting off of fireworks because of this reason, then I think that's fine. I think that's a fair enough reason not to, but I think that there will be a couple of, who, you know, might still want to participate in the festivities of the Lunar New Year. And so I think that you're always going to happen, have it happen, um, you know, even if you do ban it a little bit. Uh, it's just about, yeah, mitigating that risk and then the sort of cleanup in the aftermath. Yeah, COVID after all also does impact the respiratory system. So having smog and then having COVID and then having fireworks doesn't seem like a good combo for these athletes. I will say, though, if you're an athlete where you are staying in Beijing, you'd borderline want to get there early just to see, like, some of the Lunar New Year festivities in China. Like, it's a golden opportunity to do so. And it's four days before the opening ceremony. For So for the case of the curlers, it's two days before they start. So you'd borderline hope that they're there at that time. But we're up to our last one for tonight, which is the figure skating. Um, and Michelle, you covered that for the Edge of the Crowd this week. So would you like to take us through? Yeah. Um, first of all, I did want to, because we talked about this a little bit with the Europeans, we only had one case, one positive COVID case thus far announced from Four Continents, which is held in the same city as Europeans. Very vast improvement from... Um... <laughs> Good job. Fewer skaters way fewer cases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
So, you know, that's a, a piece of news that it was a concern that we had, especially given that uh, the uh, Korean Olympic team were there, as was the Australian Olympic team, which recently got announced as well. Um, so uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, none of those athletes had uh, caught were, uh, were around people who tested positive for COVID um, during their stay or during their travels and they can actually safely make it to Beijing. So moving on to the men, uh, we had on our podium in first place, Junhuan Cha, uh, in second place, Kazuki Tomono, and in third place, Kalmura. It was a relatively kind of clear podium, 4-1-2-3, where, you know, first was first in all segments, second was second in all segments, third was uh, third in all segments. Uh, so underneath that, it got a little bit messier, but that's expected in the men's. It was really kind of historical moment for uh, Junhuan Char, especially. He is the first Korean skater to win um, a medal at all in the uh, men's in four continents. Only the second Korean to win a gold at four continents at all, following Yuna Kim in 2009. And this is also his first senior international ISU championship medal. So a big week for him in the lead up to Beijing. Yeah, um, and it couldn't have gone much better. Maybe they could have given him higher scores <laughs> because it did. I was like, if this was at Europeans, he would have gotten a 100 for the short program and a 180 for his free skate, possibly. Maybe the free skate, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But just in the grand scheme of things, it's like when you compare his short program to the three Russian men that were in the top three uh, at Europeans, and maybe we shouldn't realistically compare scores in different competitions, but it was in the same location, so it's hard not to. Um, it was just like Jun scored lower, but had a far better performance than those three. And it's also a pretty big deal for Kazuki Termino and Cal Mira, who both won their first ISU championship medal. Um, Cal's still in that like cusp of like in the junior and senior phase, whereas Kazuki is the same age as Shoma Uno um, and has been competing for a long time and is finally seeing some rewards this season. He's changed his coaching team throughout this quad. Um, and so he is with uh, Misha Gay, who is a very talented choreographer. He was an amazing skater. He retired shortly after the Pyeongchang Olympics. Um, and I think that that's helped him go from strength to strength. But he's obviously added some jumping coaches into that team as well. And his jumps are looking cleaner and cleaner. He had some of the best jumps in this competition. And it reflected in his technical marks where he technically scored higher than Junhuan Cha, but his component scores were lower. Um, and then we've got the Australians and uh, surprise, surprise, Brendan was first out of the Australian group. He finished sixth overall, uh, fourth in the short program, which is a huge deal. He's got an 81.12. So he was a little bit over seven points off getting a small medal, which at the European Championships, four continents and worlds, you get like a medal if you win the short program, a medal if you win the free skate and a medal if you win the combined total. Um, and then he had the strangest, I think is fair to say, free skate out of anyone across all of the competitions because his planned program sheet and the elements that he did were not the same at all. He had to do quite a bit of um, math and diagram drawing in order to figure out what actually happened in that program compared to what we thought was going to happen. 
uh, and how that may have impacted his scores. I mean, his opening quad toe loop looked really good. And then he changed what I believe was meant to be a triple axle combo as his second jumping pass. And he intended to do a quad style cow, ended up tripling it. Um, and I'm blaming that 90% on the really weird air position he had. He landed the jump, like to his credit, but it looked real dicey in the air. <laughs> and then we had James Min and Jordan Dodds, who finished 15th and 16th, respectively. Uh, James got a 155.02 as his total score, whereas Jordan got a 139.15. So as a result of all this, Brendan, we already know, is on the Olympic team and James has become the first alternate and Jordan is the second alternate for the team this year. Um, so in case like break glass, in case of emergency, um, we might need James or Jordan to get off to Beijing before February 7th, I think it is. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is Brendan's third Olympics. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, and it equals um, Stephen and Danielle Carr and Cameron Medhurst as the most amount of Olympics by an Australian in figure skating. Um, but Stephen Carr, like if there's an asterisk, it's that he um, competed in the pairs with his sister Danielle three times, but he also competed once in the men's singles at the 1998 Olympics, I think it was. Um, at the same event that he was competing in the pairs in, which doesn't happen at all anymore. <laughs> but no, uh, that says more about like how few people there were in Australian skating, but also like it is a testament to how good he was that he went to the Olympics for two figure skating events that are pretty different. But we might move on to the women's. Great time in the women's as well. A lot of really standout performances all around. Um, in first place, we had Mai Hara. In second place, we had Hyun Lee. And in third place, we had Yellen Kim. For Mai Hara, this is her fourth Four Continents medal and her second Four Continents gold, which is really kind of amazing for her. Um, she, we kind of mentioned that she's had a tough kind of few seasons battling health issues. So to see her back in this form, especially after disappointingly missing out on uh, one of uh, Japan's three Olympic spots um, was really good to see. So I want your opinion on this. Do you think both Team Japan and Team Korea made a mistake with picking their Olympic teams? Obviously, my Mahara, but Hayan Lee is also the first alternate for the Korean team. So the top two ranked skaters at Four Continents um, are not going to the Olympics. And in this case specifically, like, the Koreans sent their team. So you actually got to see at an international level how these three could potentially get scored. With the Japanese women, it, it was always going to be a dicey situation. And kind of personally, I am quite emotionally attached to Mai because of her story. She has this really kind of inspiring kind of Olympic kind of narrative almost with kind of the health issues and persevering and also her really strong close friendship with Kari Sakamoto who is the Japanese national champion and kind of a almost a medal contender in the women's event uh, against the Russians so all of that makes a really wonderful package but I also understand people who say um, in your Olympic team you should have you know someone who's a little bit more experienced on your team someone who kind of you you imagine to be a crowd favorite of some kind and then also someone who represents kind of 
the uh, the generation of skaters moving who will move on and not just retire immediately after the Olympics. So Japan did choose Mana Kawabe, who is younger than Mai and Kari and Wakaba, who are kind of all within kind of a similar age bracket. So in that sense, it's understandable, especially because Mana does have difficult tech content, including a triple axel. So you can see what the Japanese Federation at least were thinking when they were making that decision. And it was also quite rational in the sense of the fact that we always knew that Japan considers nationals above all other conditions and track records that you have within a season when deciding on their Olympic team. So Mana did win the bronze at nationals and you can use that as the justification about why she went. Yeah, I just think that, I think that method of like someone that's a medal chance, someone that's a crowd favorite and someone that is um, of the next generation in a way, isn't actually the smartest strategy. Because I think that if you go with someone that is exceptional technically, someone that is very balanced, which is Cowrie amongst the three of them. And then someone that is more of an artistic skater. So Mai Mahara, uh, that actually increases your chances of getting a medal because you're tech like your artistic skater is more likely to skate clean um and team usa has actually done that in the men's this year people were really worried that jason brown was going to end up getting snaked and not make the olympic team despite the fact that he has consistently been the number three u.s man for this entire quadrennial but um it's to team usa's advantage to have Vincent, who is probably the one that's more technically inclined, Nathan, who has become more balanced over this past quad, and then Jason, who, while not having any quad jumps, is exceptional. But I think that the Korean ones is probably more noticeable because we haven't seen Hayen Lee compete internationally before Four Continents, and then she's immediately gone out and won a Four Continents silver, which means that where were they hiding her? In juniors, duh. Yeah, but I just I think she's proven with her senior scores that maybe she should have been the first choice over Yalem Kim and to be fair Young Yu who is their top choice and is deserving of being their top choice um, fell on all three of her triple axles and ended up in sixth and I think that hurts the Korean chances because Young Yu is the Korean that is the most likely to potentially jump onto the podium um and I think that every time we say someone not Russian is a chance to jump onto the podium, it's like, if it's a disaster for the Russians. Yeah, we're kind of assuming that in any instance that the Russians falter, here is our uh, kind of group of skaters that we think could snag a spot on the podium. Young Yu obviously has done really well this quad in general, some really great performances at competitions and the falter seems to be very recent in terms of kind of injury and the way that kind of the this season has kind of panned out for her is definitely not what she wanted. I think a similar thing can be said for uh, Rika Kihira, who would have been the Japanese favourite for an Olympic spot and potentially even the Olympic podium were she not injured and having had to pull out basically at the last minute yeah and we'll move to the Aussies because Kalani Crane uh in finishing in 12th ended up earning an Olympic spot um this is where the ordinals got a little bit messy because she was 10th in the short program with a 57.46 uh 11th in the free skate for 106.56 and then was 12th overall with 164.02 
And whilst it wasn't as messy as one of the Russian junior national scores that was this weekend, which like the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because someone got like seventh, seventh, and then finished in fourth, which I made a joke about fourth, four and second, but seventh, like whole other level of like messy, messy comp. Um, And then we had Victoria Alcantara who finished uh, in 17th. She got a 49.73, which was a personal best for her in her short program. I didn't have the best free skate, ended up with an 88.53. I think she had two falls, a combined total of 138.26. I will say Kalani has two programs that have the potential to go viral on social media this year. She's doing a Heart of Glass, um, for her short program, she's doing Heart of Glass by Blondie. And I think that that a little bit will get in with like the mum crowd that like figure skating, but also like it's a pretty good program. And then if she's going for like the guys that like are watching skating because like their girlfriends are putting it on or maybe they're just interested in skating. The fact that she's skating to Gangster's Paradise in her free skate, um, that has the potential to go viral as well. Gangster's Paradise is definitely a little bit of a meme in the figure skating kind of uh, fandom for a bunch of reasons. But adding on to that with Kalani choosing to skate to it at the Olympics is only just a bonus for us Aussies who love our campy fun program. And then we've got the pairs, which it wasn't technically an international event. I don't really know the like specific term as to how you phrase it. Basically two countries were competing and had Australia not withdrawn, it would have counted as an international event where the scores stood for like world total points and that sort of thing. But the Americans were the ones to win. I was riding for the Canadians. I thought Walsh and Michelle would do really well. Turns out they finished in third. So we had Emily Liu and Misha Mitrofanov uh, win. They got an 189.10, a pretty clean overall. And then we had Emily Chan and Spencer Howe, who had a 180.94. They just edged out the Canadians, who got a 179.70. So, I mean... We knew that this wasn't going to be the strongest pairs competition because even Canada and the United States weren't sending their top teams. But I think that it made for an interesting competition nonetheless. We should probably move on to the ice dance because we've probably been talking for a little bit too long. Um, and the United States streak of gold medals has continued for a fourth consecutive year. Well, not consecutive year, fourth consecutive four continents championships. Um with Caroline Green and Michael Parsons winning. They scored a combined total of 200.59. And they were were well ahead of everyone else. Um, They were 10 points ahead in the free skate of Kana Murimoto and Daisuke Takahashi. And they were further eight points ahead of them after the short program. So they extended their lead by a fair bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, Kana Murimoto and Daisuke Takahashi came second at this competition. And then in third, we had Christina Carrera and Anthony Ponomarenko. So quite a kind of interesting podium. Um, a lot of kind of first-time medalists in the ice dance, at least, once again. Um, uh, Caroline Green and Michael Parsons, basically, you know, they had stronger skates. They got more levels um, and were definitely aided by the fact that uh, Muramoto and Takahashi did have a fall in the short program during the pattern, which is the worst time to fall because it's one of the highest scoring elements and you invalidate a lot of points by falling at that time, which was very unfortunate for them. But still, really standout performance. 
uh, by the Japanese and also kind of a very historically significant moment. Daisuke Takahashi becomes the first uh, athlete in four continents to win medals in two different disciplines, the men's and the dance. And Kana Muramoto is basically, uh, basically now has two four continents medals, medals with two different partners and with Takahashi, they become the highest ranking non-American, non-Canadian dance team um, to uh, compete at four continents with these results. Yeah, and we also have the Australians and Holly Harris and Jason Chan uh, also similarly had a fall in their Midnight Blues pattern. Uh, Holly Harris was the one that fell. So they ended up only getting a 59.07. Their free skate was quite better. Um, they got a 97.93 for a combined total of a flat 157, which I do like to see scores that are just zero zeroed at the end. Yeah. Uh, but they ended up finishing in eighth overall. And I think oh, hopes were high for them here, but also at the same time, it's been a tough couple of years for everyone. And so you can't put too much pressure on them. And then the Aussie youngsters, India Net and Aaron Westwood, uh, at their first four continents, ended up finishing in 10th. And they had a combined total of 113.15. Definitely not the performances that either team probably wanted to have at this competition, but it was still really great to see them and having this kind of international experience still would have been good for them. Um, I personally still really enjoyed um, Harrison Chan's uh, programs. They're also kind of tons and tons of fun and uh, really uh, kind of one thing that I wanted to point out with theirs is it's one of the programs that I really want to share with people, but it becomes a bit complicated because the music is often um, muted in the programs due to, to copyright um, issues uh, because they're skating to Kylie Minogue. Now, it would have been perfect for me to show my friends their performance here despite the fall, but SBS in Australia chose not to stream the Four Continents Championships that had Australian skaters in it while it was happening despite streaming uh europeans last week with no australian in full, <laughs> in full yeah i took my beef to twitter um <laughs> i i also have a beef with sbs uh figure skating fans bleed a national broadcaster every single year over like the grand prix period because like some events will be live some events will not be live and so like Essentially, it's just bullying until they give us all the events live. But also at the same time, like SBS did not show it as well as like last week, the ISU's YouTube channel, which also streams it. They had random events, not geo-blocked. And then at Four Continents, everything got geo-blocked. And it was just like, really? Like last week you were lazy about it. And when there's actually Australians, you're going to be like serious? <laughs> like... And SBS was doing, I think, replays the next day and not even like full replays. It was like a recap version. So you obviously saw the Australians and you saw the best results. But like, that's not what I want. I want to watch the event and I want to see how they fare against people that do rank lower than them. Did the SBS not realise that this was Australia's Olympic qualifying decider? Oh, no, they did. It said it on the SBS app. <laughs> and yet they made choices. Yeah, um, and I also, like, <laughs> we normally complain about figure skating commentary a lot, um, but this week with the Australians there, 
Uh, Simon, who was a Eurosport commentator, was very hyped on the Australians. It was actually quite funny to see because normally he's kind of bored with it. Um, he's been commentating figure skating for 20-something years. Um, Jason can attest we've shown him programs for the 80s that Simon's commentating now that I think about it. So it's a lot more than 20 years. But at the same time, it's like his enthusiasm levels for Brendan doing well. I was just like, man, I'm hyped because they're Australian, but you're like way more hyped for being a British dude. Yeah, it's and Simon does have his favourites and, you know, we all do. <laughs> Not all of us are long-term experienced international commentators of official events, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can play favourites on our little podcast, but Simon did it on a live stream <laughs> with like thousands of people watching. Uh, but we're coming to the end of the episode. So how about you guys share your social media handles? Yeah, uh, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at jserves. And you can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and on Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g underscore underscore which is basically just my name with all the vowels replaced with the relevant punctuation mark and you can find me at dodzy161 on twitter and instagram uh there's only a week to go until the olympics start so please check out the edge of the crowd website uh, www.edgeofthecrowd.com we will have a flag bearer predictor because it's been confirmed that we're going to have two flag bearers this year uh, on the website most likely on the friday that is a week before the games actually start um, and we're going to have plenty of other olympics content and as you might have heard if you're a regular listener or you listened during the tokyo olympics during beijing we will be going we will be having new podcasts every single day to recap the events of said day so if you miss some of the late night stuff or you just want something to listen to on your way to work the next morning ascending olympus will be there for you <laughs> you can find ascending olympus on twitter and instagram at ascending Olive pod at the moment we're doing uh olympics movies specifically winter olympics movies on goals on film so check out goals on film at goals on film pod we also post the videos on youtube for that one as well which have little movie funky editing cuts in it uh (laughs) ascending the olympus is a part of the edge of the crowd network you can find edge of the crowd on twitter instagram and tiktok at edge of the crowd thanks for listening and we'll see you next week